great to see everyone out this morning. Uh, there are several of our, our number gone, but we do have several visitors here, and we want to welcome you to be welcome you this morning, and we hope that everything we do and say this morning is pleasing to God. This morning, we want to continue our study that we started last time. As you can see, this is part two of our study of Colossians. Uh, we're going to be looking at, continuing in the first chapter, looking at verses 14 through 23. I've, I've named this, this part that he might have the preeminence, because I think this is an overall idea of what Paul is trying to get across in these verses. Before we move on, I want to look at part one. I want to do a quick review. Uh, Epaphras is a man who was kind of instrumental in setting up the church at Colossae. Um, he has gone to Paul, who is in prison at this time, and every indication of, of what we read shows us that Paul probably has not been here yet, has not visited this church yet. Uh, but Epaphras is giving him an update of what's happening here at this church. And what we see is that Epaphras has told him that some positive things are happening, and that's what we see Paul thank God for. He, he thanks God uh, for their obedience and their faith. But he also has heard, obviously, that there are some issues surrounding the church, that there's some outside pressures from the society surrounding the Colossian church. And Paul prays that they will be able to avoid those negative influences from the outside, from the society that surrounds them. He then goes on to pray that they will grow in wisdom or knowledge and wisdom and they will walk worthy. And when we talk about walking worthy, we're talking about using that wisdom and knowledge and using it to live a life pleasing to God. We ended that part, uh, the first section of that with Colossians chapter 1 and verse 12. And I want to go ahead and reread that because I, get, I, think, I feel like that's a good introduction into what we're going to be talking about this morning. In verse 12 of Colossians chapter 1, he says, "...giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son." So what he is talking about here, again, he's thanking God that he made a way to bring us out of the power of darkness, which is the world, and translate us into the kingdom of, the, of his dear Son, which is the church." And in the next verse, verse 14, he says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. So in these verses, Paul talks about the Son or Jesus Christ being the Savior. Paul tells the Colossians that they have redemption through his blood. And what that word redemption means is rescue. They are rescued because of the blood of Christ. And that rescue comes from his willingness to sacrifice himself and shed his blood. And that blood cleanses us of our sins. And that's something that the Colossians couldn't do on their own. It's something that we can't do on our own. We need the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And Paul is going, in the next few verses, is really going to emphasize Jesus really throughout this whole book. But in the next few verses, he's going to emphasize who Jesus is. And I believe before we move on, I think it's imperative that we understand what was happening in the society around this church at the time. Many people would call this the Colossian heresy. It's basically devaluing who Jesus is, not giving Jesus the credit that he deserves. Now, we mentioned the word Gnostics in part one. That word is never mentioned in the word of God, but the similarities between this group that caused a lot of issues for the church in the first and second century are very similar to what we see Paul referencing in this book of Colossians. 
So I want to look at those things just for a minute to kind of understand, and I think it'll give us a good introduction, a good context of what Paul is trying to say in the next few verses. First of all, in the society, there was beliefs that were a mixture of Jewish, Greek, and pagan ideas. So the Jewish teaching like circumcision, uh, laws about meats, feasts, Sabbath days, things like that were prevalent in their beliefs, but they also mixed those with Greek philosophies of the day, but also they exalted human wisdom. And if you look at the word of God for any time at all, you're going to understand that human wisdom cannot be trusted. Human knowledge cannot be trusted. Our heart is weak. We can't trust what we think. That's why we need to put our trust in the word of God. But these, these, this society valued the ideas of, the, of, of humans and knowledge of, of those in the society at the time. And I, I think that mirrors kind of what we see in our society today, doesn't it? Human wisdom is exalted in our, in our society today. If you don't follow the science, you're, you're looked on as ignorant. Even though there's numerous amounts of science that points to God. Not only that, the society around them had feelings of superiority. They felt like they were a little better than those in the church. And the reason was is because the church didn't believe what they believed. Again, that sounds pretty familiar to what we see today, doesn't it? If you don't go with what mainstream, if you're not with woke culture, and you don't agree with what society says, you're looked down on as ignorant, lacking knowledge. They had a false humility, a, few, a, hum, a false humility that they would try to show through putting themselves through extreme pain. They would go days on end without eating. They would put themselves in positions of pain for long periods of time to show how religious they were. But they had low moral standards. They denied the holiness of God. And they denied the moral standards set forth in God's word. The next two or two that we're going to really focus on this morning, first of all, there was a denial of Christ's part in creation and then they also denied that Christ came in a physical body. So the belief, when you look at the Gnostic belief, it was belief that all matter, and all, all, all spiritual and all physical, were opposed to each other. And they could not come into contact with each other. So it's this belief that the spirit is all good, and the physical is all evil. And that because God is a spirit, he's all good, but he can't come into contact with material things which means that God, or Jesus, could not take part in the creation of the world. But that also means and would prevent Jesus from coming to this earth in a physical body because physical and spiritual could not mix together. That was the belief of the time. And I think that's going to be very prevalent in what we see Paul talk about in the next few verses. And their, their reasoning for Jesus Christ was that there were many intermediaries between God and men, and Jesus was one of those, but he wasn't actually God. So as we move on, Paul gives a, a, a pretty in-depth description of who Jesus is and his authority. And in verse 15 of Colossians chapter 1, he says, "...who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, for by him were all things created." that are in heaven 
and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. So Paul gives this description. And basic, the basis of what he's talking about is that Jesus is the creator of things visible and invisible, of everything. He's the creator. Something that was totally against the teachings of the society that surrounded the Colossian church at that time. But Paul goes into depth here, and the first thing I want us to understand is that he says that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the image of the spiritual God. That word image comes from the Greek word icon, which is a likeness, a representation, a resemblance. Jesus is a likeness, a representation, a resemblance of God. You think about the spiritual God. He's never been seen by man. He can't be seen. We think of Moses in Exodus chapter 33. And in verse 18, Moses asked Jesus to reveal his, or asked God to reveal his full glory to him. And, and God responds to him in verse 20. He says, And he said, Thou canst not see my face, for there shall no man see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place for me, and thou shalt stand upon a rock, and it shall come to pass while my glory passeth by, that I will put thee in the cliff of the rock, and will cover thee with mine hand while I pass by. And I will take away my hand, and thou shalt see my back parts, but my face shall not be seen. Moses says, you, or God says, you can't look on me and live. It's not possible. The whole, we, we can't, as humans, take in the full glory of the spiritual God. We can't. Now, something interesting that I've talked to many guys about this, this uh, back parts here. Now, many people want to say that that's the back parts of God. Now, if you look at that definition and you look at the Strong's definition, one definition in the Strong's is the hereafter which leads many to believe that he's talking about Jesus Christ here. The point I want to make here, though, is that while we can't take in the full glory of the spiritual God, his full glory was revealed through Jesus Christ. John 1 and verse 18, it says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. Jesus was the image, the interpretation. He is God on earth. He is fully man. He is fully God. And Jesus makes this claim in John chapter 14 as he's talking to Philip. And Philip asks a similar question to Moses. You know, when Moses said, I want, I want you to reveal your, all your glory to me. Philip asked Jesus, he says, show me the Father. And Jesus makes this response here. He says, have I been so long a time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me hath seen the Father. And how sayest thou then, show us the Father? He's saying, if you've seen me, you've seen God. And again, this is totally contradictory to what the society around the Colossians were telling them at the time. And Paul wants to make that point known. He goes a little further and he says that he's the firstborn of all creation. Psalms 89 and verse 27 echoes this. It says, also I will make him my firstborn higher than the kings of the earth. 
He's the firstborn. And that doesn't mean, many people would say, well, that means he was the first to be created. And we'll address that in a second, but that is not what that means at all. When we talk about the firstborn here, we're talking about title and rank. You think back in biblical times, the firstborn was the most important. The firstborn was the one who had authority over the family when the father could no longer do that. When that was passed on, they were the firstborn. They were given the inheritance. They made the decisions. They were the authority. And what Paul is saying here is Jesus Christ is the firstborn. He is the authority over all creation. Hebrews chapter 1 and 1, it says, God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds. Jesus Christ is the authority. He's the superior one. He's above all. He goes on to say, for in him all things were created. The SV translates this as, for by him all things are created. The fact is, Christ wasn't created. He was there from the beginning. He is eternal. He was existent in the creation at the beginning. And we read John, verse, John 1 and verse 1 as John opens his gospel. He says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jesus Christ is the Creator, which is another contradiction to what the society was teaching surrounding that Colossian church. created all things, both visible and invisible. It makes him pretty superior, doesn't it? That gives him a lot of authority, doesn't it? Paul emphasizes Christ's relation to creation by saying that all things were created by him. In other words, it was his idea. He thought it up. He goes on to say that all things were created through him. It was through his power that the, that, that the creation was, happened. He says all things were created for him. That the creation exists for God's glory. And ultimately, he will be glorified by that creation. Pretty in-depth description of who Christ is, isn't it? He goes on to talk about the preeminence of Christ a little more. Colossians 1 and verse 17, it says, and he is before all things and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body of the church who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. When you look up that word preeminence, what that means is the fact of surpassing all others, superiority. Christ is superior to all creation, to everything. He says first that he is before all things. And again, I believe this is a reference back to his eternal being. I want us to notice he says he is before all things. He doesn't say he was. He was here at the beginning and he is still here and he is still superior. He is still the authority. 
Jesus makes the claim of being eternal. In John 8, 58, he says, Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He's eternal. He was there from the beginning. He will be here for eternity. And he will be in power. He will have authority through eternity. He goes on to say that in him all things consist. We look at our world. All things hold together. All things work because of Christ. Being the third rock from the sun, as some people would say, I think there was an 80s, 90s country hit about that. But we're the third rock from the sun. And they say that because our earth is the exact distance that it is, it can sustain life. If we were a little closer, the earth would burn up. If we were a little further, it would freeze to death. What about the earth's stable rotation? We have a stable rotation. If we didn't have that stable rotation, one side of the earth would burn up, one side would freeze. What about constant gravity? I'm grounded in some ways by gravity, right? Now, this is some, gravity is something scientists can't explain. It, it baffles them. They don't understand it. Now, I got these three things from a website. Let me, let me tell you the, the title of the article. It says, 30, or 13 Incredibly Lucky Earth Facts. So what this article wants us to believe is that our earth is where it is out of luck. It's a coincidence that we have a stable rotation and constant gravity among 10 other things. It's all pure luck, but I'm here to tell you it has nothing to do with luck. It's all about intelligent design. Genesis 1 and 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heaven and earth, and he created it in a way that it can sustain itself. Jesus made it that way. The distance from the sun is because it was meant to be that way. The reason we have a stable rotation is because it was meant to be that way. The reason we are grounded with gravity is because it was meant to be that way. It has nothing to do with luck. That shows a lot of superiority, doesn't it? But then he shows us even more superiority, even more authority as he starts into, he's already talked about the original creation. Now he moves into the new creation, which is the church. And he says, and he is the head of the body, the church. Think about that for a second. He is the head of the body, the spiritual body. We as the individual members make up that spiritual body. Now, I get up here and I flail my arms because that's what my brain tells me to do. I guess it makes me comfortable up here speaking. I don't know, I walk around because my head tells me to do that. If I go to touch a hot pan and it's hot, my arm's going to come back because my brain is telling my body to do that. That's exactly what Christ is to the church. He is the head. He is the authority. He tells the spiritual body what to do. Just like the human body. Ephesians 1 and verse 19, it says, And what is the exceeding greatness of his power to usward who believe according to the working of his mighty power, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places? For above all principality and power and might and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in which is to come. 
and hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that, to, that fulfilleth all in all. See, Christ is our authority. If we belong to Christ, we belong to the church. To be in Christ is to be in the church. And that means when we come here and we worship or we live our lives for Christ, we are completely directed by the word of God. That's where we get our direction, not from our thoughts, not from our human wisdom or knowledge, but from the word of God. And that's where we get our direction from. It's from the head who is Jesus Christ. What that means is, is we don't need an infallible pope to tell us what to do. That means we don't need a prophetic preacher to tell us how we should worship God. That does, that what that means is we don't have to listen to what society says about how we worship Jesus Christ because everything we need to know was revealed through Jesus Christ in his word. And that's what's important. He's the head of the church. And some people might say, well, you have leadership at your church, Jason and Carrie, they're, they're leadership, they have authority. Well, I would agree with that. But let me tell you the difference. Jason and Carrie don't wake up from a dream and make changes to the church. Jason and Carrie don't listen to what society thinks is right and change the beliefs of the church. When they have a question or they have a concern, you know where they're going to go? To the head, to Jesus Christ, to his word. And that's exactly how the church is meant to be run, by giving Jesus the respect he deserves, understanding that it's his word that must be followed in how we worship, in how we live morally, in the plan of salvation, in everything we do, Jesus is the head, and Christ is the authority. He goes on to say, continuing with that thought about the new creation, the church, the fact that he is the beginning, and we think about him being the beginning. He's a new beginning for us. When we think about Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice, because of his shed blood, he is the beginning for us, a new beginning, a chance for us to, for, to put away the sin that we once committed and start over. 2 Corinthians 5, 17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. He's our new beginning. We have a second chance, a third chance, a fourth chance because of Jesus Christ. And that's because he was the firstborn of the dead. And what that means is that Jesus Christ was the firstborn to, or the first one to die and to be resurrected, never to die again. You might say, well, Lazarus was resurrected, but he died again. Jesus was the first one to be resurrected, to overcome death, to defeat it. In Romans 6 and verse 9, it says, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more, death hath no more dominion over him. And because of that, we have the opportunity of a resurrection. Because of his willingness to sacrifice himself, to die and to be resurrected, we have that opportunity ourselves. 1 Corinthians 15 and 20, it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the first fruits of them that slept. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. 
For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive, but every man in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are Christ's at his coming, then cometh the end when he shall be delivered up to the kingdom of God, up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. Because of the resurrection of Christ, because of his willingness to sacrifice himself, we have the opportunity to have a second eternal life. But only because of the blood of Christ, which again contradicts what was being taught by those around this church at the time. But the thing is, is we have a choice. Are we going to make a choice to serve God, to give ourselves to Christ, obey his gospel, let him be the authority over our lives, or are we going to try to do it ourselves? John 5 and 28, it says, Marvel not at this, the hour is come in which there are in their graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. We have a choice. And the fact is, is we are given that choice because Christ has the preeminence. Christ has a support, superiority and he was willing to die for our sins. But the choice is ours and we have to make that choice. Closing out the lesson this morning, Paul talks a lot about Christ's sacrifice and kind of relates that to the Colossians. And in verse 19, he says, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by the wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. If the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unprovable in his sight. If ye continue in the faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which ye have heard and which was preached to every creature which is under heaven whereof I, Paul, am made a minister. So Paul emphasizes the importance of the sacrifice. First of all, he wants them to understand that it was God's plan to send Christ as a sacrifice to all. It was his plan. God is a just God. He needs justice. And our sin causes a debt that we cannot pay. Christ made that happen. Jesus Christ was sent to live a perfect life to be a perfect sacrifice for us, to die on the cross and to be resurrected, to overcome death. And that's exactly what he did. He fulfilled that plan. And because of the fulfillment of that plan, we can be cleansed of our sins. We can be forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed that day. He then goes on and issues a little warning to the Colossians. He issues this warning basically reminding them of the time in their life where they were alienated from God. And the reason they were alienated from their God was, was because they had sin in their lives. There was no answer for their sin. They had not obeyed the gospel at that point. And I think that's a stark reminder for us. If you look at Romans 3.23, it says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We have all sinned, and that should be a warning for us. If we have not obeyed the gospel, we need to make that happen. We need to do that today. Because when we hear that word, when we believe it, 
when we repent of our sins and we change who we are and we confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and we're baptized and we come into contact with his blood, we are raised that new creature and we are forgiven of those sins. And then Paul reminds them of that reconciliation that comes because of their obedience, because of their willingness to give Jesus Christ the authority in their lives, that they have that reconciliation through him. Forgiveness comes from the blood of Jesus Christ. And that's where that reconciliation comes from. Because of his willingness to die, because his willingness to give his life for each one of us. And that's something that we should never take for granted. That's something that we, just like the Colossians, what he's telling the Colossians, don't forget that. Don't take it for granted. Understand the importance of that. Because the society around them was telling, Jesus is not God. And what Paul is telling him is, Jesus is the reason you can have salvation. It's so important that we understand the good news, just like we talked about in part one, and what we're gonna talk about in probably every part of this study of Colossians is the good news of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say that because of that blood, we can be presented holy without blemish and unreprovable. What unreprovable means is that we are blameless, that we cannot be called into account. It's what that means. He says, because of the blood, we, we can be presented that way. Not because of anything we've done. Not because I could walk up to the gates of heaven and say, I'm holy. I, I can't do that on my own. But the blood of Christ allows him to present me that way. And that's the only way I can be presented. Because my life is full of sin. But his blood covers that sin. And then he finally closes out and basically calls them to avoid those false teachings. Those temptations coming from the society around them that, that they were totally surrounded with. To understand that that word that Epaphras had preached to them was more than enough, that it was sufficient to save their souls and encourage them not to depart from it. If you're here this morning and you've never obeyed the gospel, you have an opportunity to be a part of of the body of Christ. You have that opportunity this morning. If you've never obeyed the gospel, we encourage you to do that this morning. Be a part of the body of Christ. Let him be the authority over your life. Maybe you've turned your back on him. Maybe you're just struggling and you need the prayers of the church. We can pray for you. We can pray with you if you come to the front as we stand and sing.